You have just entered the Liberty Lighthouse, where we cut through the fog of politics with common sense and logic. Coming to you from Pennsylvania, the state of independence. Here he is, author of the book, Progress, Really? U.S. Navy veteran and your host, Peter Serafine. Welcome to the Liberty Lighthouse for Friday, 17th of April, 2020. This week, I had planned on talking about, well, basically congressional ineptitude. But as often happens, I start doing some research and I see some things online and I find out what people are talking about or not talking about, and then I change what's going on. So, going to be a little hodgepodge of a few different things with, with a guest in the second segment. So... Let's just launch the show. Welcome to the Liberty Lighthouse. With your Liberty Lighthouse keeper. Your beacon of common sense. Your wiki, if you will. Peter Seraphine. We urge you to join the conversation by calling 64-MY-RIGHTS. That's 646-974-4487. And sign up to be a member at liberty-lighthouse.com. That's right interactive show that the Liberty Lighthouse is. I love to hear your questions, comments, and concerns about everything that we talk about in the Liberty Lighthouse. And you can do that by calling or texting 64MyRights. Let's start out with a correction. Last week, when talking about the gun control legislation being pushed, I mentioned how many FBI background checks had been done for the, the purchase of firearms uh, in the month of March 2020. And the first time that I said that number, I misspoke. I said 4.7 million. Then from there on out, every time I said it, I said 3.7 million. And 3.7 million is the correct number. The 4.7 really was just a misspeak. And 3.7 million background checks were performed uh, for the sale of firearms in the month of March 2020. And 3.7 million is still the record that I said it was. The single month total record ever. And sticking with that, uh, I don't know, conclusion, follow-up, whatever, of last week, one of the things that I didn't mention, and I really should have, was the sponsors of uh, House Resolution 5717. There are 19 people that are signed on to this bill as sponsors or co-sponsors, and these 19 people have no respect for your Second Amendment rights, and we, the people, should do everything we can to make sure that these 19 people all get voted out of office. So uh, they are all Democrats, and here they are. We got Henry Hank Johnson of Georgia, Rosa DeLauro of Connecticut, Eleanor Norton of Washington, D.C., Danny Davis and Mike Quigley of uh, Illinois, Anthony Brown of Maryland, all nine of the members of the House of Representatives from Massachusetts, Catherine Clark, William Keating, Joseph Kennedy, Stephen Lynch, James McGovern, Seth Moulton, Richard Neal, Ayanna Presley, and Lori Trahan. We got Bill Pascal from New Jersey, and then Elliot Engel, Carolyn Maloney, 
and Joseph Morell from New York. So these nine, I'm sorry, these 19 uh, members of the House of Representatives, they don't respect your right to keep and bear arms, and therefore they don't deserve the right to be in the House of Representatives. So let's vote them out. Okay, so last week being cleared up, let's uh, get into this week. One of the things that I've seen a lot of is talk about the USPS, the United States Postal Service, uh, going to run out of money by June or something like that and asking for a bailout and Trump saying, no, he's not going to bail them out. And they tried to put a bailout into one of the stimulus bills, but it wouldn't go through. So anyway, uh, well, why is the United States Postal Service in such financial trouble? Well, it's entirely Congress's fault. And uh, if you don't pay any attention, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I mean, if you haven't specifically researched the U.S. Postal Service, you just see on the news that, oh, my God, they're broke. And you don't know why. So I'm going to tell you quite a bit of why. In 2006, the... uh, Post Office, the U.S. Postal Service, was required to fund 75 years of health care retirement benefits pre-fund. No other federal entity was required to do this. No other private entity is required to do this. But the USPS has to put away enough money to cover 75 years of their retirees' uh, health plans. Now, that costs the post office between 5 and $6 billion a year to try to get to $72 billion a year set aside for this pr- purpose. Currently, the post office has $47.3 billion in this fund, which is like 10 or 15 years of their employee or their, yeah, their employee retirement benefits. So why on earth was the post office required to do 75 years of prefunding when no other agency, private or public, has been required to do so? My theory, I think that there were people in Congress that were specifically trying to privatize the post office. They were trying to make it go completely bankrupt so that they could sweep in and buy it up or something like that. But that's my own personal theory. The fact is that without that 5 to $6 billion a year pre-funding requirement, the post office isn't in bad shape at all. Now, the other thing that really hurts the post office when it comes to finances is the Postal Regulatory Commission that was created in 1970 by the uh, Postal Reorganization Act. So, One of the things that this particular commission does is it price regulates what the post office can or cannot charge for uh, postage rates. And their rule is they do not allow the post office to increase the cost of postage higher than the rate of inflation. And when the post office needs to have that increase, they have to go basically begging to this this commission if uh, they can do it. Now, this is a uh, not government, supposedly, uh, uh, 
not congressional uh, committee, but they then report to Congress, and Congress was the ones that set up this committee. So it's it's a very convoluted level of bureaucracy, and it costs the post office the ability to stay fluid within the market. Now, to give you an idea of uh, how much every little penny of your stamp costs, you know all that so-called junk mail? Uh, as a post office person, I'm not allowed to say junk mail. We call it uh, uh, bulk business mail. So, you know all of that bulk business mail that you get, all of that standard mailing, advertisement stuff that just about everybody gets almost every day. Well, they get special rates. They Because they're mailing out so much stuff, they don't pay the 55 cents per piece of mail like you and I do. Increasing what those people pay by five cents would raise $25 million of income for every 500 million pieces of mail. Now, 500 million pieces of mail sounds like a, wow, that's a lot of mail. It would take years to do that. No, it wouldn't. It would take like a couple of days. The post office moves so much mail, it's disgusting. And moving the uh, the rate of that bulk business mail or political mail or nonprofit mail, uh, all of the groups that get discounted rates, raising their rate just a little bit would raise the income of the post office a whole lot. So why is the post office going broke? The two reasons are basically both the fault of Congress. First is the pre-funding requirement. So, hey, Congress, you have the ability to pass a law that removes that 75-year pre-fund requirement or maybe just modify it. Don't remove it. Take it down from 75 years to 30 years or 10 years or something like that, something more reasonable. And the other, of course, eliminate the need for the post office to go begging to some congressional commission every time they need to raise the price of uh, postage a penny or two. So it's actually that story that brought me into the realm of congressional ineptitude, which was going to be the the uh, topic of this episode of Liberty Lighthouse. So the post office story got me started, and then I went and looked at Congress. And just to shorten how much I was looking into, I only looked at the 116th Congress, so this current Congress, and, and basically did some high-level looking at what they have and have not been able to accomplish. Now, here's some funny statistics. There have been 9,987 bills introduced in the 116th Congress. Of those 9,987, 531 have passed one of the two houses of Congress, and only 140 have passed both houses of Congress. So that's about 1% of the bills introduced that actually make it past both houses of Congress. Now, this is where I think it gets really funny. Of that 1% of the original bills, 140 have passed both houses, right? 30 of those 140 that have passed both houses of Congress have been, well, do-nothing bills, for lack of a better term. 
21% of the bills passed really don't do much of anything, not stuff that I personally think Congress needs to be dealing with at all. So 20 of those 140 bills just renamed a post office. Yeah. To put a name on a post office, the name of some war hero or civil rights leader or something like that. So if you want to call the post office in any town USA the Alfred E. Newman post office, it actually has to go through Congress because that's a, a good use of, of Congress, right? $2 million a day that the Congress costs us, the taxpayers. Uh, let's have them spending time renaming a postal facility. Yeah. Five of those 140 bills uh, just appointed somebody to some job. Two authorized commemorative coins and three more were renaming VA facilities, Veterans Administration hospitals or something like that. So again, just renaming stuff. So honestly, I'm a little torn by this because that is, you know, 20% of the bills that actually get passed don't really do anything. And I think that's a tremendous waste of time and our taxpayers' money. But because they don't do anything, they're not infringing on our rights. They're not expanding government. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm a little torn. You know, maybe if all of the bills that Congress passed were do-nothing bills, then, uh, you know, maybe government might get out of our lives a little bit. And, you know, continuing with this ineptitude uh, conversation, let's talk about our coronavirus, Wuhan flu, lockdown, stimulus, government response to the uh, World Health Organization's global pandemic. I specifically want to start by talking about the stimulus money. So our government decides that in order to stop the spread of this virus, we have to shut down the world. Okay. Initially, they said two weeks. Okay. So we've got the world shut down for two weeks, but that's a whole lot of people that lose their jobs for that two weeks that become unemployed. So the government has to do something about it. Only seems fair. The government shut us down. The government needs to take care of the citizens that they've put out of work. Completely reasonable. And I think shutting down for a couple of weeks while they figure out what's going on with the virus was completely reasonable because they didn't know it was new. They didn't know how fast it spread. They didn't know how deadly it was. They didn't know anything. And shutting the world down for a couple of weeks to figure it out, I think, was, uh, was reasonable. Now, having extended it to six weeks and, and now talking about extending it for months at a time, uh, no, you've gone too far. You've got your information you got to do something to get back to work. But that's not where I want to go right now. Right now, I want to talk about that stimulus bill. So the stimulus bill comes out $2 trillion. They're going to give everybody everybody in America 1200 bucks or all citizens or whatever. Anyway, so they come out with this stimulus bill. Now, I want to take the money from this stimulus bill and put it in terms that, that the average person can understand. Because we now throw around trillion with a T – like it's nothing. And I don't think people really understand what this this amount of money is. And when you point out that this $2 trillion spending bill had, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that went for uh, other 
pet project type stuff, a lot of the pushback is that, oh, well, that's it's really only a couple of dollars here and there. That when you look at the grand scheme of things, the you know $250 million that went to Project A is, is a drop in the bucket compared to the $2 trillion that was spent. So let's put that into some perspectives. Some of the things that the stimulus bill gave money to were you know, specifically calling out some private college to give them millions of dollars. Uh, the Kennedy Center for Performing Arts, which – is located in Washington, D.C., and why specifically one particular performing arts center, not a fund for many of them, it, you know, but that's beside the point, too. Uh, NPR, PBS, and uh, your local libraries. Okay, so these are all things. We can debate whether or not any of them should ever get any money from the government, and I think the answer to that's no, personally, but that's not the point here either. Let's look at this at like a household level. So let's take the money from the federal government and putting it into terms that we can all understand. So the annual budget of the federal government is roughly $4 trillion. So let's call it $40,000. We'll move it, move the decimal point a couple of places and make it $40,000 just like, you know, a household, you make $40,000 a year. Now, the deficit is 20, well, was 22 or $23 trillion. All right. So again, move the decimal place. We go, we uh, come up with 200000 So you, your house, you earn $40,000 a year and you have $200,000 in debt. Reasonable, right? You got a car payment or two and, and a mortgage and maybe a couple of credit cards, whatever. You owe $200,000, you make forty grand a year. That's basically the situation that our federal government was in. But then they decide to cut all of the work, you know, non-essential and businesses have to close. Now, that means that their tax revenue drops dramatically. So the your $40,000 income into your household gets cut down to, say, I don't know, $10,000. Now, what would you do? If it's my household and I all of a sudden lost 75% of my income or half of my income or whatever, I'd cut expenses. I'd stop spending on things that are unnecessary. That would be the very first thing I would do. I would go through my accounts and try to find everything that I'm spending money on that is unnecessary to sustain life and get rid of those things. But what we really have going on is they spent another $2 trillion, which would be basically 20,000 in our household category or our household simulation here. So you got a $40,000 a year salary, you're $200,000 in debt. Your salary gets drastically cut for some undetermined amount of time. So you run out and spend another $2,000, I'm sorry, another $20,000 on credit cards. Maybe those money that you're spending is good. You know, some of it you're going to give to your family so that they can stay alive. That makes perfect sense. Some of it, maybe you're going to loan to your friends and neighbors that own small businesses. 
again, makes perfect sense. But then you're also going to donate to your you know, local high school and you're going to donate to the uh, theater down the road and donate to the national uh, radio or the uh, local radio station and donate to the local TV station and donate to your public library. I don't think so. I'm not. You cut my income by some draconian amount and you don't can't tell me for how long. And I'm not going to spend all of that money. I think it's absolutely ridiculous that any of the morons that we've elected to Congress think that that was a good idea. That it's just bad optics to begin with. And it shows the partisanship. Our Congress cannot even pass a bill to keep Americans alive without padding it full of crap for their pet projects. I'm really starting to believe that anybody who's been in Congress for more than two terms needs to go. We need to vote them out. We need to get people in there that have a little bit of common sense that can actually see the swamp rather than swim around in it and think of that as a beautiful swimming pool. So that's not the only Wuhan flu crap. What else is going on in the Wuhan flu world that's really pissing me off? And I'm sorry that I'm I'm being relatively cranky on this particular episode of Liberty Lighthouse, but I have to say that I've become relatively cranky in general, probably because of this Wuhan flu quarantine, lockdown, stay-at-home, whatever the frick you want to call it. I have a problem with the stay-at-home orders, the shelter-in-place orders, whatever you want to call them. I, I, and my problem is multi-layered, multi-fold. For one, I went along with it in the beginning for the first few weeks because it made sense, like I said earlier. But it keeps getting extended, and that is a problem to me. We are becoming closer and closer to Big Brother looking over our shoulders every day. This morning I saw a news story about a mayor in New Jersey who's now using drones to fly over his city and broadcast to people that are outside to go home and self-quarantine that they are not safe from the virus. That's Big Brother incarnate. I don't care who you are. It's not Big Brother-ish. It is Big Brother. The other problem I have is the fact that I really don't think this whole stay-at-home stuff is even constitutional. And there's a, probably a lot of people out there that will disagree with me and argue that that uh, the governors have the absolute right to do this. But I can tell you right now, the federal government does not, absolutely does not have this right. States may have it, but I would argue differently. And part of the reason that I have that um, perspective is a court case from 1866, ex parte uh, Milligan, 71 U.S. 2. This case was during the Civil War, and it was related to wartime powers. But one of the things in the, the decision that I think we all need to heed, one of the things we should all read and pay attention to, was, quote, neither the president nor Congress nor the judiciary can disturb any one of the safeguards of civil liberty incorporated into the Constitution. 
except so far as the right is given to suspend in certain cases the privilege of, of the writ of habeas corpus. So I don't think it's legal. Anyway, we're about out of time. We're going to have uh, Bill Cushing in the second episode. Bill Cushing, a, an author and a libertarian, and he, well, he'll be right back. We'll be right back. He'll be with us. You're listening to the Liberty Lighthouse. Join the conversation now. Just call 64-MY-RIGHTS. That's 646-974-4487. A little over a year ago, I got so frustrated with progressive society that I wrote a short book called Progress. Really? You can buy my book on Amazon for $5.99 in the paperback form, $0.99 in an ebook, or... Go to liberty-lighthouse.com, sign up to be a member, and download it from the file shares page for free. Progress, really? Just questions. At what point is progress not really progress anymore? Let me tell you why I chose Anchor to host my podcast. First, it's free. It's one of the few hosts I found that really is free. They have all the tools that you need. You can make your podcast on a computer, or you can download their free app and make edits and uploads straight from your phone. So, if you're interested in starting your own podcast, I say download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. You're listening to the Liberty Lighthouse Podcast. All right, welcome back to the Liberty Lighthouse. As I said, we have a guest with us now, Mr. Bill Cushing, recently retired English professor, from two different universities in California. And what's interesting about that is he's a libertarian English professor that just doesn't seem to go together. Hopefully he'll be able to explain that to us. One of the top 10 poets to watch in both 2017 and 2018, and the author of the recent book, A Former Life, a collection of poems, Mr. Bill Cushing, welcome to the Liberty Lighthouse. Well, thanks for having me along. Thank you very much for your time. As an English professor, I'm hoping you might help me come up with a few things. I'm looking for good quotes about liberty. Well, to be honest, why is because Wuhan flu lockdown that we've got going on here. I, I think we're, we're on the precipice of losing some pretty significant liberties. So I'm about to protest. I actually yeah. went out and bought some foam core poster board stuff and poster paints, and I'm going to make some signs. <laughs> Let me out. <laughs> so as an English professor, I thought maybe you might have a few of them that I haven't thought of. One of my favorites, unfortunately, is too long for a sign, and that's Ben Franklin. Those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor sure, safety. Neither, <laughs> I love that one. Yeah, it's interesting because there's a lot of, of good quotes from the founding fathers. I mean, Jefferson, Madison, uh, of course, Patrick Henry, who's only known for the one quote, but has some tremendous other ones as well. The one, of course, I being, I, I, know what, uh, I know not what course others may take, but yeah, as yeah. for me, give me liberty or give me death. Yeah. You know, he's got some other really good quotes that I always like. I mean... There you go. This might be one that would fit in with your current protest. If this be treason, make the most of it. <laughs> well, that that would that would probably apply to me as the person protesting. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it is interesting because 
this whole, and, and I'm starting to get interested in following some of these protests, too. I, I can put it this way. The government isn't going to keep me in the house, but my wife sure as hell is. Because I'm of the age, and she's right, and she's in the medical field, and I go, okay, fine, I'll, I'll go along with it. But I told her, I said, look, you know, if we get to the middle of May and nothing's going on, then you're, then you're going to have a hard time. But uh, I'll go along with it for a while. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm in California, too, which, you know, I'm an English professor in school and academia and in California, and I'm in the belly of the beast. I don't know if you heard the quote from our mayor here in Los Angeles about what snitches will be rewarded. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did. <laughs> All I can say is, and you guys think Trump was the problem. I, <laughs> I haven't heard any. I've heard a lot of weird stuff out of him, but I haven't heard that one yet. So, yeah, I, I mean, you look what happened was in Michigan the other day. People were, you know, tying up traffic. And yeah, that the uh, the intentional creation of a massive traffic jam around Lansing. Yeah. That was great. It's kind of funny because normally it's the status who do that, uh, and it's all well and good because they're just expressing their feelings. But now it's like, oh, these people are horrible. It's not what's done, it's who does it, I guess. Yeah, I, I look at, I mean, I don't know if you heard the story out here where there was a, uh, a restaurant that said, look, we can't sell, we can't have sit-down. Yeah, clearly we're making some sales to go, but they decided, look, we've got all this, these vegetables and things. They're going to go bad. Why don't we sell them, you know, dry good type thing? And they got shut down by the health department. And it's like, there's you know, a surprise. memo mentality just drives me nuts, where you can't think beyond whatever you're told in writing. I don't know. It, it's This is a strange situation. I, I mean, as far as, I'm, I'm sorry, I think we've been giving up liberties all along here. Um, I mean, you look at the, I mean, geez, well, the Patriot Act is one. I mean, I'm, I really do not like most of that. I understand. I, I'm, one of the things, I'm becoming to the belief that there should be, here's a constitutional amendment for you, that no law can be passed in reaction to a situation immediately after the situation. <laughs> because. You need a cooling off period. Yeah, you got to take six months, then look back. Because you look at some of the stuff that came out of the Patriot Act, and it's just ungodly bad. The other thing I always liked, I think it was uh, Rand Paul said that there should be a certain number of hours per page for any proposed bill. I don't know if you're Reasonable. Thinking. Yeah, it's like, because, you know, you come with a 2,000-page bill, and, oh, you got till tomorrow to, you know, decide on it. It's like, come on. You know, even the best, even with the staff, you're not going to get through all that. No. I've always been of the mindset that, you know, the U.S. Constitution is, uh, what, 4,200 words or thereabouts? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. If they can, if our founding fathers can set up the framework of all three branches of government, the limits of power and everything, the entire framework of our federal government in 4,200 words. Words, yeah then no law that comes out of Congress should ever have to exceed that same 4,200 words. <laughs> that's not a bad idea. But, you know, and that's funny you mentioned that because here again as a writer, one of the things I've always loved about the United States Constitution is its simplicity, that you don't have to be a lawyer to figure it out. I mean, all right, some of the words are older, you may have to look around and do some digging, but in general, I think any 
decently educated 10th grader can read the thing, okay, this is what it means. And the other thing that I think makes it so brilliant is, and this is the problem today, is it doesn't try to solve every potential problem because you can't, first of all, that's impossible. But then it just becomes so heavy with rules that it gives you no leeway. It basically, look, here's the operating instructions. Go do. <laughs> that was pretty much it. Well, the federal uh, government was never supposed to solve all the problems. I mean, well, yeah, yeah. when was the Texas Seed Act? I, I, I don't remember when it was, but that was a great example of, of you know, no, it's not the government's job. For, for those listening who don't know about the Texas Seed Act, uh, Texas had gone through, you know, years of, of drought. And they kept trying to plant crops so they wouldn't grow. And so they ran out of seeds. And they petitioned the federal government to say, hey, we're going to run out of seeds and therefore run out of food unless you help us out. And Congress got together and they said, we need to help them out. And they, they came up with a bill. And it, I don't remember the amount, but they said, you know, we'll, we'll give you X number of pounds of seeds or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the president vetoed it. So that's yeah. not our job. Yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not our job. That well, is not Madison who said that, that, that no matter how well-intentioned it is, it's, I don't see anywhere. I, I've always loved quoting Madison simply because he's the man who wrote the damn thing. I think you should know what he meant. <laughs> yeah, you would think. It is funny when I get into arguments with some of my former colleagues, you know, and I quote Madison to them, well, that's the whole, you know, White guy, yeah, but he's the guy who wrote the thing. You know, I, I mean, I would hope you'd assume he knows a little bit more than you do about what. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's it's interesting to see this. Yeah, but I one of the problems I have is this absolute worship of government, as long, like you say, it is meant to solve all problems, and actually they tend to create more problems than they solve. Oh yeah, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. But just to just to wrap up the Texas Seed Act before we get too far gone, oh, yeah. I, I don't want our, our listeners to go, well, 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 I didn't finish. It was 1887, and Grover Cleveland was the president that vetoed the bill. And what ended up happening is, is citizens from all over the country started sending seeds to yeah. the Texas government. And the Texas government eventually got so many that they had to take ads out in newspapers all over the country saying, please, stop sending us seeds. <laughs> we're, we're good. We're good. Yeah. And I yeah, think that is, is a wonderful tribute to the difference between what we the people can do versus what the government does. And anytime the government gets involved, it adds 45 layers of bureaucracy and doesn't fix anything. Yeah, and it's usually grossly inefficient. And that's always been my big thing is like, look, if you want to have an argument that this stuff should be publicly funded, fine, but my God, can we do better than what we're doing? I mean, and in the micro, I don't know if you remember, it's about 12 years ago, the Amtrak hamburgers. Did you hear about this thing? Where No. All right. On Amtrak, they were selling hamburgers at $10 a piece. Now, these are burgers. Probably not as good as what you could get at Carl's or any decent fast food place for five or six bucks. But they were paying like 18. So in other words, they were losing eight bucks on each burger. And, and I'm looking, and you guys want these guys to run healthcare? They can't even run a sandwich shop, for God's sake. <laughs> you know? 
Well, one of the things I talked about earlier in this episode was what I consider to be the ineptitude of Congress. So, uh, you know, a quick review for you, because you didn't hear the other part. It, the 116th Congress, the current session of Congress, mm-hmm. uh, they have had uh, 9,987 bills introduced into the two houses of Congress. Yeah. 531 of those bills passed one house of Congress, and 140 passed both. Oh, okay. Okay, so th- there are a little over 10% passing both houses of Congress. That actually doesn't sound that bad. But yeah. when you look at the 140 that passed... 20 of them were to rename a post office. Oh, yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, well, Five were appointments of, you know, so-and-so to some job. Yeah, Two of them yeah. were to make commemorative coins. And three were to name VA facilities. Okay. Well, I'll tell you why I have no problem with that. It's, it's pretty much harmless. <laughs> I, I've always wondered this metric that, the more laws you pass, the more effective you are. <laughs> How about this? Why don't we start taking away some of the laws which you guys have done? There's an accomplishment. One of the things I was talking to my wife about was what's going on with the coronavirus and how's the government going to react. I said there's lots of things they could do that would help people, but the problem is it would require the government to do with less power and less money. You know, In other words, if they were willing to say, for example, you can write off certain things off your taxes next year and not off the income, but off the actual taxes. That, oh, I could, if I pay my employees for the next few months, then that payroll comes off whatever my company owes in taxes. Not off what I claim, but off what I pay. Tax but credit versus tax the deduction. The government would have to do with less money, and of course they're not going to go that and it gets down to the, we're being asked to sacrifice. Well, I don't see government sacrificing anything. <laughs> Not at all. I haven't seen one of them offer to turn their salaries over. Yeah, yeah. And and this $1,200, which is going to cost each taxpayer, what, three grand? That's Six. That's a great deal. Yeah, sign me up. Six. $2.2 or $2 trillion okay, divided by 327 million Americans. It costs $6,000 a person, and we get 1200 and that's and, assuming all 300 and something million are working, too. <laughs> right, right. Well, what I, here's what I don't get about the stimulus bill at all, is uh-huh. let's, let's try to put the federal government in terms of, like, a household. Yeah. So yeah. let's say that instead of being $23 trillion in debt, that yeah. your household is $23,000 yeah. in debt. Yeah. Okay, so my household is $23,000 in debt, and then all of a sudden, everybody's out, everybody in the house is out of work. So I yeah. no longer have income coming in. Let me spend two thousand more dollars. Yeah. And oh, by the way, with that two thousand dollars, I'm going to buy some art and passes to the museums, yeah. and uh, and and donate a little bit of money to NPR and PBS. Yeah. And I mean, come on. No, I know. Well, and what I say, I, I this has been my thing all along. And, and I got to say, I, I actually became a libertarian mostly because of Reagan. Actually, he's sort of the one who pushed me in that party, surprisingly enough. Because at the time when he cut that deal, remember he cut that deal with Tip O'Neill about, well, I'll give you this increase in taxes, but you got to do this decrease in spending, which of course they never honored. I find it amusing that Democrats don't understand why Republicans with any sense of history don't trust them. But at any rate, 
at that time, I was working at the shipyards, and we had to turn this boat around. We had a tanker come in, needed immediate repairs, needed to get back out on the water right away quick. So we put in, now just myself, I put in two 24-hour days in a row. In other words, I worked 24 hours, took eight hours off, went to the hotel, slept, got back up with another 24 hours. Then and a couple other guys did this too. And then came in Saturday for 10 hours, Sunday for eight hours. So you can imagine the overtime I got on that week. Well, I got my check. More had been taken out in taxes than I took home. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. I was the guy sucking coffee down all week trying to stay awake to get this thing done. And somehow I walk away with less money than the government takes. Uh, right then and there, I was like, no, something's wrong with this system. <laughs> I had a I similar experience. I worked at Walt Disney World for a while oh, as okay. a cook. Disney is a is a union place, and they had all those lovely rules about uh, overtime and double time and penalty time and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So when when the holidays come around, when it's Christmas time, every hotel on Disney property has Christmas parties, and they just don't have the staff for them all. So if you're willing to work in different locations, you know you can work holiday party go to your regular job, then go to another holiday party, then go yeah. home, then go to a holiday party, your regular job, <laughs> holiday party. And and you can rack up as much overtime as you want for mm-hmm. the entire month of December. Yeah. So my my first year as a cook, I certainly tried because I yeah. was making, you know, less than $10 an hour. Mm-hmm. And when I got my first paycheck after that first week of all of that overtime and I saw that I had jumped three or four tax brackets, Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't take long to sit down with the calculator and figure out, okay, I don't want to work more than, you know, 10 yeah. hours of overtime There's or whatever no it is. You yeah. lose all incentive. And by me doing that, the government then doesn't get all of the extra income that they would have gotten had I been willing to keep working. Yeah. So it is definitely a tax system that uh, punishes the successful and, and shoots itself yeah. in the in the foot. If the purpose of the tax code is to fund the government. Yeah. And here again, and, and by the way, one of the things, here you go. Here's some political math for you. I this. Remember this formula, X equals 3X, where X is what the government promises it will cost, and 3X is what it actually is going to cost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what. I may not be right every time, but I'm a whole lot closer than they are. <laughs> yeah, you're probably undershooting yourself a little bit. It's probably yeah, closer to five or six I, X. They come out and say it's going to cost, you know, Exhibit A is Obamacare. Because remember, when he came out, he said it's going to cost, what was his number? He wanted to keep it under a trillion, I think. Yeah, he tried. <laughs> yeah, like 700 and something. Did. And within the first year before it had been fully implemented, it was 2.7 trillion. That's three times. <laughs> yeah. In the first year, it's already gone way over budget. And and even in the smaller parts, and here again, getting back to the hamburger thing, what kind of restaurant's going to stay in business <laughs> if they're selling $18 hamburgers at 10 bucks? Well, of course, they don't have to. And I'm like, look, if you want to have the argument that I should help pay for public transportation, I'm willing to have that argument. But don't expect me to pay for the food, too. <laughs> Come on. If you're hungry, bring a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Well, apparently you want you, uh, we're all expected to pay for public transportation and yeah. public broadcasting and yeah. museums. Oh, yeah. And By the way, there's a, a, another uh, 
another one for you. This is one of the things I used to tell my classes. My my grammatical libertarian argument is this. Um, and I would get up there and say, look, okay, what's an adjective? An adjective is a word that says something about a noun, about, you know, long, tall, short, red, orange, whatever. So any adjective is a word that qualifies or tells you something about the quality of a noun. Now, take the word public, use it as an adjective. Notice that every noun instantly degrades in quality the minute you put public in front of it as an adjective. <laughs> I, I never thought of it that way, but yeah, yeah, public you're right. Public public housing, public restrooms, my favorite. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I've, I've been to a couple of really nice public restrooms. Oh, yeah. yeah. I always said the only difference to me is public libraries. And the reason that is is because libraries are controlled at the community level. It's the people who live in the area that actually run, here's the hours we keep, here's the shows we put on. So not that they're not getting state and federal money, but they're not being run by some guy in D.C. or, you know, somebody else, in, in my case, Sacramento. You know, so, but normally public institutions just are hard. And that's, here again, goes to, like you say, the gross inefficiency of government. <laughs> it just cannot do anything right. And, and it's, it seems to be the standard. And it's, well, you know, there's always a certain amount of corruption. And so that's acceptable. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> and you're okay with that? Okay. <laughs> yeah, there are certain things that any is too much. Yeah. yeah. Uh, corruption but, is corruption. And, and, and once again, getting back to your point about the Constitution, if you look at the Constitution, really the only expenditures assigned to the government is the military to protect the borders, you know, attack from without, the judiciary to protect the individual. And then, I mean, not even the police force. The police forces are all either state or, or city, pretty much. Uh, but that's basically it, is the judicial system and the military. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> but one of, one of my points that I've made repeatedly is uh, if you go through and actually count the uh, powers given to the federal government listed in the Constitution, the actual enumerated powers, Yeah, you get somewhere between 30 and 36, depending on how you tally them. Okay. Uh, and the example I always give is one of them says the federal government has the, the authority to create a Navy, and then it yeah. also has the authority to fund a Navy. So if you count that as one or two is how you get the difference okay, yeah. between 30 and 36. Yeah. Okay, so if if there are even at the high end thirty six enumerated powers within the Constitution, how is it that we have four hundred and twenty federal agencies? Yeah, many of which are redundant. Oh, very redundant. But I, yeah, it's always interesting to me watching this stuff, and it's like I really I got to admit I'm I'm having a hard time containing myself sometimes because I look at what. People I know, and especially here in California, um, I'm like, your faith in government is really interesting to me. <laughs> I don't know where it comes from. I mean, it's, it's almost adorable. It's a, so dangerous. In fact, it's funny because I remember having an argument. There's a woman who's a you know, fairly good friend of mine, and uh, she teaches too. And she teaches political science, which I found even more amusing. 
But at one point, we were talking about gun ownership. And she said something to the effect of, oh, you're just one of those anti-government psychos. And I said, okay, so let me see if I have this straight. I don't trust government, and I'm psychotic. You do trust government. Given the history of government, which you well know from your studies, why am I the craziest? <laughs> I'd love to know how you arrived at that conclusion that I'm the nutty one here. <laughs> what kind of an answer did you get for that? Uh, she kind of laughed it off. I mean, what could she say? Uh, like, no. And in fact, I've even sort of used it on occasion since then as well. You know, I'm just one of those anti-government psychos. You got to expect that from me. I'm just like, come on, you know, just look at the history of government throughout time. And just because you're in the modern day doesn't – and here again, going back to the brilliance of the Constitution, why did they not try and, and answer every question? Because basically the way they set it up – and this is one of the things I'm always telling people is, look, human nature is pretty consistent. Technology changes, knowledge changes, yes. But basic behavior, eh, it's pretty – it doesn't change a whole lot, you know, and, and so they didn't, you know, of course they didn't account for things in the future because they weren't accounting, they weren't accounting for technology because that's not their, their job, that's not their problem. Why, why do you think, I mean, it's sort of like, I mean, I'm, I know you've heard this argument, I'm sure, that, well, you know, when they wrote the Second Amendment, it was muskets, which, yeah, of course it wasn't, but, uh, you know, they didn't see this, they didn't see that. Well, yeah, but they didn't see anything beyond the pen and quill for the First Amendment. So I actually saw one one time. It says, "If you uh, want to take my gun away, please yeah. <laughs> send it to me on parchment, written by a feather quill, delivered by a courier on horseback, and I'll listen to you." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a great one. The really funny thing about that, though, um, the repeating rifle was yeah, actually invented before the Second Amendment. It existed yeah. before that. It was uh, basically a, a, a revolver that yeah. you, you loaded multiple shots in, and yeah. But that was that was created before the Second Amendment. So that just. But here again, even even Washington said, "Look, you know, yeah, it is. This is the point of, of the whole gun ownership is to discourage any would-be tyrants from." trying to take advantage of people. And of course, it all gets back to, look, you know, I have the right to defend myself. And, you know, uh, if you're going to go life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, life is listed first. So, (laughs) you spare me the, the, you know, I'm going to be a danger to you because I choose to defend myself. Which, by the way, is another thing I love saying is whenever I hear somebody use assault weapons, that expression. Well, all my weapons are defense weapons. Yeah. I, uh, in a previous episode, I said that, you you know, assault is a verb and it's it's an assault weapon only if it's used to assault. I said the same thing goes true with a broomstick. If I beat you up with a broomstick, it's now an assault broomstick. Are you going to ban broomsticks? Yeah. Well, I, and it's funny because I've even made up, I've just made, I've, because I've run into it so much, I've made it into something, a JPEG I can just post up. And it basically says, a reminder one more time, that assault is in the intent, it's not in the instrument. 
Exactly. And we've got about a minute left, Bill. Okay. So let's tell the listeners where we can find a former life and uh, reach you if you actually want to talk to anybody. Well, yeah, let me do that because actually I'm I'm making a deal right now uh, <laughs> um, where if anybody wants for for twenty bucks and that is the selling price, but I'm willing to mail a signed copy to them. So. Uh, you know, they just contact me through the email. It is available on Amazon, and I have a couple other books up there as well. Uh, but that's the major one. Uh, so it is on Amazon. It's called A Former Life under the name Bill Cushing. But if they just write to the Pisces Poet at Yahoo, and it's all one word, P-I-S-C-E-S-P-O-E-T, at yahoo.com. And if they tell me that, you know, they were listening to your show, hey, I'll, I'll be more than happy to work something out with them to send them a copy sign. That was Bill Cushing, Navy veteran, libertarian, poet, and author. Uh, email him at PiscesPoet at Yahoo.com. Mention the Liberty Lighthouse to get a signed copy of his latest book. Find all of his works, all of his published works, that is, on Amazon.com by searching for his name, Bill Cushing. Sorry this episode was a little bit of a hodgepodge. We jumped around recovering uh, some mistakes from last week and then the post office and then the coronavirus and congressional ineptitude and then pretty good interview with Bill and just, I don't know, no clear focus. I'm sorry about that. I'll try to do better next Friday and every Friday thereafter, 6 p.m. for the Liberty Lighthouse every week. Don't forget to call 64 My Rights with your questions, comments, and concerns. And until next week, protect your liberties. Once they're gone, there's no getting them back. God bless America. Thanks for listening to the Liberty Lighthouse podcast. Be sure to sign up at liberty-lighthouse.com to download Peter's free ebook from the file share page. And don't forget to call 64 My Rights to leave comments for the show. That's 646-974-4487. If you enjoyed this podcast, tell a friend about Liberty Lighthouse. And wherever you listen, subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated.